I was going to have that go a little bit longer, but um, I gave half of my time this morning to the women's ministry. So, <laughs> bless her heart. Isn't she a breath of fresh air? Amen. So guys, we're going to have to step up our game just a little bit, right? Amen. To compete with those ladies. So, hey, if you need a Bible this morning, you're definitely going to need one. So if you don't have one, raise your hands and uh, one of the guys will bring one to you. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we have some brand new ones that we'd love to give you to take home. You can swing by the uh, info table out there, which is the little table by the door. We'd love to give you a Bible. We'd love you to take it home. We'd love you to read it. And we would most of all love you to get to know the God who wrote it. Um, Hey, pray for the youth there up at camp this weekend. I got a text from Pastor Tosh last night. He hasn't sent any of the kids home yet, so I think things are going pretty well. But... Pray for the kids and, of course, pray for Pastor Tosh. Bless his heart to go up there with those. Uh, I think we've got eight kids up at, uh, up at camp. So, hey, turn to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to look at the whole rest of the chapter, verses 13 through 28. And as you're turning there, I will say today's text is a super important one. And I wanted to make sure that we took the time to really set the right theological tone for the morning. There was a man who died and ended up, of course, at the pearly gates and met St. Peter there at the pearly gates. And St. Peter asks him, he says, you know, tell me what you've done that I should let you into heaven. Tell me about all of your good deeds. And of course, the guy thinks for a moment. He says, okay, St. Peter. He says, well, I was recently at a roadside restaurant in Arizona. And Peter kind of looks at him and he says, okay, yeah, it was a bar. And then he says, uh, you know, and I noticed in this bar that there was this nice woman sitting alone. And then this group of guys from a biker gang. Now, this was the bad kind of biker gang, not the good kind of biker gang. But these guys from a biker gang come over and they start really speaking to her disrespectfully. And they start making unwanted advances towards her. And St. Peter says, well, what did you do? So the guy said, well, I knew I couldn't stand for that. So I went right up and I told, you know, I knew somebody had to teach these guys a lesson. So I went and I demanded that they stop. And Peter says, wow. And they said, well, who's going to make us? And I said, well, I am. Either you or your friends are going to clear out of here and leave that woman alone, or you're going to have me to deal with. And clearly impressed, right? St. Peter asks, wow. When did this all happen? And the guy stops and he says, wow, it seems like it was just a couple minutes ago. (laughs) Okay, so St. Peter jokes, right? Peter at the pearly gates, they can be funny jokes. And yet, all of those jokes are based on a centuries-old misunderstanding and a misinterpretation of our text this morning. And as we're going to see, Jesus has some very critical questions to address and the right answers to which really help to ensure that we have a rock-solid foundation for our faith and for our lives, both here and, of course, eternally. So it's an important text. Let's just pray and ask the Lord to really give us eyes to to understand uh, today. So, Father, we do thank you so much, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you've desired to make things so clear to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would um, just help by the power of your spirit 
just to provide illumination, Lord, to your text and to your word today. Lord, we pray that you alone would be our teacher. We ask you to bless this time, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember last week in the first half of chapter 16, we jumped back in together, back into the book of Matthew, and we watched Jesus contending again, right? He was confronted again by the religious leaders. And remember, these guys were growing increasingly. They were threatened by him and by this ministry that they saw flourishing. Remember, we watched the disciples, right, have one of their kind of little faith moments, and they needed to be reminded of these things which Jesus had said and, and these things that he had already done. Remember that they missed, they missed, they missed, and they misinterpreted the spiritual point of that warning that he had given them to avoid the legalism, right, the leaven of the legalism and the liberalism that was promoted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then remember, at the end of the chapter, we were kind of encouraged. We finished up in chap uh, verse 12, and we dipped momentarily into verse 13. And we noted, as we dipped, that in the wake of their lack of faith and in the wake of their limited understanding, instead of trying to get away from the disciples, Jesus chose instead to get away with the disciples. And we remember he leaves the mainly Jewish area of the Galilee and he makes his way to a, a place that was more populated by Gentiles and it was Caesarea Philippi. Remember, it was about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee. It was that beautiful place there at the base of Mount Hermon. It was the location of one of these main springs that feed the Jordan River. It was a place of rest and a place of serenity. It was this wonderful retreat from all of these crowds that were pressing in on them. And we, what we'll see this morning is that Jesus is going to use this place as a time to teach the twelve. Right? This was this place, this opportunity where he could be alone with them and instruct them and, and really pour into them and then draw out of them this foundational understanding. And that starts in verse 13 with a very fundamental question. Look what it says in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. It says that when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, Jesus starts strangely, I think, asking the disciples, hey, what are folks saying about me? Now, it's strange, except let's be honest, it's a question which we've all asked, right? In fact, aren't we sort of constantly, routinely, we're checking our phones, we're, you know, we're looking for likes on our latest posts, right? Or retweets of our tweets, if, if you tweet, right? We're trying to see if we're trending, right? And the, the fact is that Jesus was trending, right? He was trending with the people, they were liking his stuff. And so we read in verse 14, the disciples, it says, So they said, some say John the Baptist some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So we noticed that the people had a high view of Jesus, but it wasn't the right view of Jesus. 
Right? Some thought he was like a herald of national repentance, like John. Some thought that he was a worker of miracles, like Elijah. Some thought that he spoke the very words of God, like Jeremiah and like the, the other previous prophets. And the truth, of course, is that he was all of these things, but also that he is so much more than any of these things. And the general tendency in all of these answers is that they were underestimating Jesus. Right? They gave him this measure of respect, but all of them fall short of really recognizing him for who he really is. And of course, the very same thing is still happening today. I think it's safe to say that Jesus is still the most controversial person who has ever walked on this earth. And yet, many see him simply as, what, a good man or, or a great teacher, or they regard him as one of a number of different voices that make up their spiritual worldview. And I think that there's a real reason at the heart of this reaction. See, from the people here, you know, they were probably seeing Jesus in these different roles. They were showing their hope of this coming political messiah, right, who would overthrow these corrupt powers, deliver them from these powers that were oppressing Israel. In essence, they were seeing Jesus not for who he was, but they were seeing Jesus for who they wanted him to be, right? They were seeing Jesus for who they thought they needed him to be. And increasingly, I think, people in our culture today are so accustomed to having it their way, right? Having everything tailor-made, it's just at the click of a button. And so it's almost like they can customize Jesus to whatever options they feel they want from him. You know, they say, well, you know, I'm kind of looking for a, a super compassionate, non-judging. I want an inclusive, really affirming Jesus. I want a Jesus that's going to make me feel good about all of these different life choices that I'm making. And voila, there he is, right? But let's be careful, church, that we're not guilty sometimes of doing the very same thing, right? We need to let Jesus be who Jesus is. Right? Not who we think or who the masses are trying to determine who he is. The, the multitudes here were so confused about Christ. They held him in high esteem, you know, but collectively they lacked the perception to see him for who he really was. And that's what's critical for each of us individually. Because Jesus doesn't ask this question because somehow he was emotionally dependent on the opinion of other people. He doesn't ask the question because he didn't know who he was. But watch, because I think he asks this question as an introduction to a more important follow-up question, right? First he hears what the people thought, then he turns the question again to the disciples in verse 15. It says that he said to them, but who do you say that I am, right? It was fine for the disciples to know what others thought about Jesus, but Jesus had to ask them as individuals what they each believed about him. And this is the most important question that could ever be asked of any individual. In fact, the door to eternity hinges, doesn't it, on this question. Who do you say Jesus is personally? 
It's a question that everyone needs to answer. And the truth is that it is we, not he, who's judged by the answer that we give. Because a right confession of who Jesus is, the Bible says, is basic to our salvation. And it determines our eternal destiny. In Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Jesus made it very clear for us in John chapter 14, verse 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, he says, comes to the Father without me. It's a very exclusive claim, and it demands an individual answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, is it at all intriguing to you why Jesus would need to ask both of these questions of his disciples? Of course, we know, you know, who do you say that I am? That makes perfect sense, as we've just said. But why bother to ask, who do men say that I am? And as I was reading and praying and studying this week, I think he asks specifically so that we can see the contrast, so that we can be reminded that our view of Jesus should be different than what the masses view Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said this, he says that our Lord presupposes that his disciples would not have the same thoughts as men had. They would not follow the spirit of the age and shape their views by those of the cultured persons of the period. And I think this is a great and a powerfully important reminder for us as Christians, especially because being a Christian is becoming increasingly difficult in our culture especially as maintaining a right and a biblical view of Jesus is becoming increasingly unpopular. And I think that the one thing that remains increasingly important is we can never make a right determination about Jesus by taking a poll of the people, right? by looking at popular opinion. The important thing isn't what anyone else says. The important thing is what do you and what do I personally say? And there's a foundational answer to that question. Look in verse 16 and 17. It says that Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So it's like, ding, 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 we have a winner. Andrew, tell him what he's won, right? Notice that Peter, though, he gets the right answer, but he had to use a lifeline, right? He had to phone a friend, didn't he, for the answer, and yet he didn't even realize that he had done it. Jesus tells Peter that what he had just so accurately said was actually a response to this divine revelation that God the Father had given to him, even though he didn't know it at the time. Now, I love this for a couple of different reasons. First of all, I think it reminds us, all too often I think that we're expecting God to speak to us in these supernatural and strange ways, right? Like he's gonna part the clouds and, and write us a message in the sky. But here, God speaks through Peter on something so critically important, 
but he does it so naturally that Peter didn't even realize that it was the Father who was revealing that to him. Now, more importantly even than that, it reminds us of our need for a supernatural revelation of Jesus. See, the Bible makes it clear that no one can confess Christ apart from the revelation of the Father. You remember back in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus explained this experience, and then we'll see Paul kind of unpack it for us. In his first letter to the Corinthians, he gives us some insight to how the witness of the Spirit works in this process. In 1 Corinthians 12, he says, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So without the Holy Spirit working and revealing truth to an individual's heart, they can't confess Christ. And so here, the Father speaking through his Spirit was helping Peter to kind of put all of the pieces together, right? From the understanding he had of the Old Testament scriptures to the miracles that he had already witnessed, to all of the teachings that Jesus had given, to Peter's prior confessions of faith that we've seen. And yet I think that this declaration was different because this wasn't an emotional response from somebody who had just seen a miracle. This was a studied, sincere statement of a man who'd just been touched and taught by the Spirit of God. And he finally recognizes Jesus for the first time as the Christ, right, Messiah, in whom all of those promises of God to the nation of Israel would be fulfilled. And not only that, but as the Old Testament made clear, the Messiah would be much more than a, a mere human being. He would be God. You see it in Isaiah 9, you see it in Micah 5. Jeremiah 23 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of rightnesses. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. That's Yahweh Sidkenu or Jehovah Sidkenu. It's one of those beautiful compound names that God uses of himself to describe himself throughout the Old Testament. Peter's understanding of Jesus had grown over time, and now the witness of the Spirit just helped everything to kind of click. And it's so important for us to keep this in mind because, again, it's the work of the Spirit to bring a person to this place, and it's our work to faithfully be part of that process, helping them to grow along the way in their understanding of Jesus just the way Peter did here. And I think that, you know, imagine how Jesus' heart must have rejoiced to hear Peter utter these words. And now watch the way not only does he accept this, con this confession, obviously, but he begins to build on it. He starts to teach Peter and the other disciples. He starts to take them deeper into new truth. In verse 18, he says, And I also say that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, 
what I think is, you know, the more we understand about the Lord, the more understanding that we're given by the Lord. Here, Jesus starts talking about his church. Now, this is the first use of the word church in all of the New Testament and, of course, in all of the Bible. And it is well before what we would most think about the beginnings of the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And what's interesting is that this word that is used here for church, it's the ancient Greek word ekklesia. And it's where we get our English word, what, ecclesiastical, right? Which we use to, you know, relating or pertaining to things of the church. And significantly, this wasn't primarily a religious word at all. It just meant a group, right? A called out group. It was a word without a distinctly religious meaning, which I think distinctly tells us that Jesus wasn't going to just be simply reforming Judaism, but he was going to be calling out a new group to be a new people that would belong to him in a new and different way to be his church right this universal church that would of anyone who would make this same confession of faith that Peter made Paul explains to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2 and 3 that Jesus was going to unite believing Jews and Gentiles into a new body right that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross and here Jesus says that this new body he says it would be this stronghold of defense that would withstand the attack of all of the forces of evil. So it's beautiful because in this prophecy of the coming of the church is also a beautiful promise about the continuing of the church. Right, That the forces of death and of darkness can't prevail against and won't ever conquer the church. And what a precious and priceless promise this has become to God's people throughout the ages, right? During the, the darkest and most discouraging times for the church. But I also want us this morning to look at it from the other side. And here's what I mean. The word gates, when you see gates in the Bible, they represent authority. They represent power, right? The city gates to a Jew was like what we would call city hall. In the Western world, we see throughout the Old Testament, it's the place where important business was conducted there at the at the at the city gates. So in a very real sense, you know, the gates of Hades or effectively the gates of hell would symbolize that place of organized power of death and of Satan. Right? All of the machinery and the strategy, the strength and the plans and the plots of the devil to destroy so I think in more than just a defensive sense, offensively, what Jesus is telling us is that by his death and resurrection, he was going to conquer death so that death would no longer be able to have power and to hold any of his precious people. Right? That Jesus was going to storm the gates of hell and deliver the captives and that we would get to be a part of that process. We get to be a part of that process as we fight with him to help to free the lost and to help people to be delivered from that terrible bondage. Now, 
Before we move on, and I know we need to move on, but I believe this is too good to skip, because as if what Jesus was saying wasn't powerful enough, where he was saying it makes it even more profound. Because here at this beautiful, peaceful, serene retreat, here at Caesarea Philippi, right, this main spring which feeds the Jordan River, we are also in the area of northeastern Israel, which had long before become the center of worship of the pagan god Baal. It was in the nearby city of Dan, you remember in 1 Kings chapter 12, that Jeroboam built a high place that angered God. He built Tel Dan, right? Eventually, it's what led the Israelites into the worship of false gods. And over time, what happened is the worship of Baal was replaced by all of these different Greek fertility gods. Specifically, Caesarea Philippi became the religious center of worship of the Greek god Pan, right? And the Greeks named this city Panius in his honor. Today, if you go to Israel, this whole area is actually referred to as the Banias Nature Reserve. Now, in the pagan mind of Jesus' day, the cave here at Banias that you see there in that picture, that cave created a gate to the underworld where all the different fertility gods would live during the winter. And they would use the water of that underground spring as a way to travel back and forth through the cave. And so they built temples there over the entrance. And here's an artist's rendering of what that may have looked like. And the point is that the pagan people of Pontius believed that their city was literally the gates of the underworld. They believed that this was literally the gates into hell and that in order to entice the return every year of their god Pan, in the springtime they would have these festivals and engage in these horrible acts that included prostitution and sexual interaction between humans and goats I mean, one author points out that when Jesus brought his, his disciples to the area, they must have been shocked because Caesarea Philippi was like a red light district in their world and devout Jews would have avoided any contact with the despicable acts that were committed there. It was a city of people, it was a city of people eagerly knocking on the doors of hell. At the same time, there had been this temple built there. This beautiful marble temple was built there to the godhead of Caesar. And I say all this because we need to think of this scene in our text here with Jesus and the disciples. And it was as if Jesus deliberately was setting himself against the background of this wickedness of the world's pagan religions in all of their history and their darkness and their depravity, and he was demanding to be set apart and compared to them. And it's here in this place at this time that Jesus declares that he will have victory over all of this. It may not seem like it now, right? 
when we look around at our world and we see the brokenness and we see the pain, but we need to look around and we need to remember Banias, right? We need to remember that Jesus has already conquered all of these things. And that as we fight with him, we fight from that place of victory as his church. And we, when we think about all of this, what is truly amazing to me is that Jesus is going to accomplish all of this built upon the unshakable foundation of Peter. Right? Isn't that what he says here in verse 18? He says, you are Peter, and on this rock, he says, I will build my church. And then look, he goes even a step further. Look what he says in verse 19. He says, and I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, these two verses, verses 18 and 19, have been a battleground for the church for centuries, right? Especially those words, this rock, and to whom or to what Jesus was referring. Now, the Roman Catholic Church claims that the church itself was built upon Peter, who here they say Jesus ordained as the first pope. And then they believe that all of his supposed successors have these same keys that were given here first to Peter. In fact, the, the papal insignia is made up of two prominent what? Keys crossed there together. And it's this idea of Peter holding the keys of the kingdom, which not only captured the theology, but has captured the imagination of countless millions of people since then throughout the centuries. In fact, if you walk through most any museum, you'll see pictures painted of Peter, and he's almost always shown holding what? Keys. And it's from this same line of thought that some people think that this means that Peter has the authority, and of course then his successors also, that Peter somehow has the authority, popes have the authority to either admit people into heaven or to keep people out of heaven. This is the reason why we have so many of these silly St. Peter jokes, right? But it's also the reason why we see so many historical abuses of power from some of the popes as they held hostage the souls of rulers with this threat of damnation getting entire nations to do what they wanted done. And the tragedy in all of this is that none of this is actually true. Peter is not the rock on whom Jesus would build his church. Jesus is the rock, amen, on whom the church would be built. Or at the very least, Peter's confession of who Jesus is, that inspired confession of the person of, of Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear throughout the Old Testament that the rock speaks of God and not men. Jesus himself in Matthew 24 would refer to Isaiah 28. Paul names Christ as the rock, calls Christ the head of the church. Peter, by his own testimony, didn't see himself as the rock on whom the church was founded. Later, he would write to all of us, he'd said that coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones 
are being built up in a spiritual house. Then he quotes Jesus referring to himself from the Old Testament to explain, therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, what? The stone which the builders rejected, that's Jesus, has become the chief cornerstone. So we could say that Peter was the first believer. We could say that he was the first rock among many rocks, but he's not the rock. Now, just the language itself of this verse is very clear. The Greek words that the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to use are very specific. Jesus said to Peter, you are Petros, a little stone, and upon this rock, Petra, a large rock, a foundation, upon that I will build my church. So we're talking like the rock of Gibraltar here, but even bigger because we're talking about the Lord Jesus. Now, I say all of that to simply say this. When the, ex the, when the evidence is examined, the total teaching of the scriptures is that the church is built on Jesus Christ and not on Peter. Now, as important as it is to have all of our doctrinal ducks, right, in a little row, and, and it's important to dispel false, you know, understanding and, and dangerous theology. I think that there's something very encouraging, though, that we can take away from this, because I think in calling Peter, Peter, I think that Jesus was doing much more than just using what was the Roman form of that new Aramaic name he had given. Remember when he said, you'll be called Cephas, Right? But in calling Peter, Peter, it was more than that. It was also a promise of the work that Jesus would do in Peter. See, because it's highly unlikely, pebbly Peter would become a rock because God was and God would transform this naturally extreme character into something that was solid. And he would transform it into something that was reliable in just the same way that he does with me and in just the same way that he does with you. And after that transformation, he would use Peter as well as the rest of the disciples to help to establish his church through these keys and through this authority of this binding and this loosing. Now, the idea here is that in Jesus' day, the Jews would talk of binding and loosing when a rabbi would interpret and then apply the law of God to a specific situation in somebody's life. Either they would forbid something or they would permit it. To loose was to free from the law and to bind was to put something under the law. And in Jewish life, this was very complicated. Here's one example from some ancient rabbinical writings. It says, if your dog dies in your house, is your house clean or unclean? Now, this was a big deal to the Jews, because if your house was unclean, there was a huge process that you had to go through to get it cleansed. So if your dog dies in your house, is your house clean or unclean? It's unclean. If your dog dies outside of your house, is your house clean or unclean? The rabbis would say, well, it's clean. If the dog dies on the doorstep, is your house clean or unclean? Now, the ancient rabbinical writings, it says they took the issue on and they decided that if the dog died with its nose pointing into the house, 
I kid you not, I can't make this up. If the dog died with his nose pointing into the house, the house was unclean. If the dog dies with his nose pointing away from the house, the house was clean. So this is the idea of binding and loosing. And in a much more productive way, Jesus is promising Peter and the other apostles that they were going to be able and equipped to help to set the boundaries authoritatively for this new covenant community, right? To establish the rules of the early church and indirectly to produce the inspired writings that would guide us as generations of Christians to follow. It's what we see all throughout the book of Acts, right? All the letters to the New Testament as they kind of worked through the issues of transitioning from this law to a spirit-led community of believers. And for us today, in a very similar sense, we still have this same authority of binding and loosing as we seek to minister, right? As we're applying God's word, speaking God's word into people's lives. Whether it's people within the church or or people outside who are seeking, we are speaking the truths of heaven into their earthly situations. We're helping to establish boundaries. We're applying heavenly standards. Um, There's a, a Greek scholar who translation of the Bible, I think, helps us to understand. He translates that verse as this. Whatever you bind on earth or forbid to be done shall have been already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth or permit to be done shall have already been loosed in heaven. So as the church, right, or even as the apostles of the first century, the church doesn't tell heaven what to do. But we obey on earth what heaven commands has already been done. Does that make sense? I know we spent a lot of time on that, but it's important. Imagine the disciples, right? They're hearing this. Imagine how their minds must have been reeling at this point. And I would think that their hearts were anxious with anticipation because it was like they were, they had, they were finally on deck, right? They were about to be up to bat. And yet look what Jesus says next in verse 20. It says that then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. What? (laughs) Did you ever have somebody tell you a fabulous secret but make you swear that you'd keep it secret for just a little while longer? That's what Jesus is doing here. Remember, we just saw in John's account, over and over, we see that Jesus' hour had not yet come. And though the disciples had just come to understand that he was Messiah, right, that he was Son of God, it wouldn't be time to reveal and to declare that to the nation until Palm Sunday. That was the date on which Jesus would ride into Jerusalem as predicted precisely by Daniel the prophet. And besides that, the disciples themselves still had a lot to learn. Before they could preach that Jesus was Messiah, they had to learn what that really meant. So we see Jesus gives them this further revelation. Look in verse 21. It says that from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. 
So as if their coming to understand the person of Jesus wasn't mind-blowing enough, now they were forced to confront what was the real mission of Jesus. He had hinted at this before, but this was his first clear statement of his coming death. Mark says that he was stating the matter plainly. Now try to put yourselves in the the sandals, if you will, of the disciples. Can you even imagine how their minds would have been blown here? They've just finally fully understood that Jesus is Messiah. The last thing that they expected was to learn that Messiah was about to suffer many things and then be killed. And though the Old Testament scriptures had repeatedly predicted this aspects of Messiah's ministry, the Old Testament scriptures, of course, also predicted this coming king. And what had happened is that the Jewish people couldn't, recon- they couldn't reconcile Messiah's two different roles. So they had actually developed a scenario in which some rabbis declared that there must be two separate messiahs. There was Messiah ben Yosef, right, like Joseph, who would come and who would suffer. But then there was a second Messiah, Messiah ben David, who would come as a conquering king. And of course, the disciples, they much more like the sound of the conquering king than the suffering servant program. And so we see next, verse 22, it says that then Peter took him aside, took Jesus aside, and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now, I love the fact that in verse 16, when Peter spoke of Jesus as the Christ, he was super into it. But then in verse 21, when Peter sees Jesus on the cross, he's not having it. He says, no way, Jesus, you've got it all wrong. That couldn't be the plan. But, verse 23 Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Did you notice back in verse 22, it says that Peter began to rebuke Jesus? (laughs) And you get the sense here that he didn't get too far, did he? Because now Jesus isn't having it. And literally what he says is, get behind me, adversary. You are a stumbling block to me. So isn't it ironic, Peter the stone, who'd just been blessed back in verse 18, now becomes Peter the stumbling block, who was anything but a blessing to Jesus. Jesus knew that there was a satanic purpose in trying to discourage him from fulfilling his ministry on the cross, and he couldn't allow that purpose to succeed. Poor Peter. Right? Just a moment before, he wasn't aware that he was speaking for God. So we can be sure that at this point, he had no idea that he was speaking for Satan. But the problem is, Jesus pointed out, Peter's mind was on the things of men. He was just looking at things from his limited perspective. All he could see was the Messiah as the embodiment of power and of strength. He couldn't handle the thought of this suffering Messiah. He probably couldn't handle the thought of watching Jesus go through all of that. And so he rushes in to try to prevent it. And do you notice that in a very real way, Peter's rebuke of Jesus is an evidence of both kinds of leaven that Jesus had just warned about. Because you take Peter's doctrinal misunderstanding, you mix it with this sort of humanistic thinking, and it was a disastrous combination. 
Now, for us personally, poor Peter provides us with a perfect example of what happens the way that a sincere heart coupled only with man's thinking can lead to disaster in discouraging somebody away from God's purpose for their lives. We need to be so careful when we offer well-meaning counsel. We need to make sure that it's rooted in the scriptures and that it's rooted in God's heart. Because so often we so desperately want to try to help people. We want to relieve their, their suffering. We want to prevent their problems. And yet so often those are an inescapable part of God's plan because it's the only way to accomplish his purpose. Now, finishing up, Jesus had posed this fundamental question. Peter had proclaimed this foundational answer. Jesus had provided this further revelation. And now finally, Jesus is going to prescribe this fruitful response. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, right? Peter wanted Jesus to follow his plan. Jesus shows Peter and teaches the other disciples that true discipleship involves a cost. He basically says, hey, not only will I go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, but if you want to be part of what I'm doing, you'll need to plan to do the same. And each of these men knew exactly what Jesus meant when he said this. Everyone knew that the cross was this unrelenting instrument of death. There was no other purpose for the cross. To us today, of course, the cross is this embraced symbol of love and of sacrifice. But in that day, you've heard it was true. The cross was just a horrible means of capital punishment. It just meant death. So to deny self doesn't mean to deny things to yourself. It means to give yourself wholly to Jesus Christ. It means to share in his shame and to take part in his death. And Paul describes this in Romans 12. He says we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. To the Philippians, he said, what things were gained to me, I've counted loss for Christ. And to the Galatians, he said that those who are in Christ have what? They've crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So not unlike the cross, we've sort of sanitized this concept, right? In our wonderful Christian ease, let me tell you, the cross, to take up the cross does not mean to carry burdens. It doesn't mean to have problems. Taking up the cross is something that you choose to do. It's not just an irritation in your life that you put up with, right? Death to self is this radical command of our Christian lives. What it means is that we're no longer living for ourselves, but instead we're living as an others-centered person. Right? Our human nature says indulge, right? pamper self. It doesn't say deny self. It doesn't say put others first. Right? And, and doing that, putting others first, putting the flesh to death, is always a miserably terrible experience, isn't it? And the truth is that if we expect it to be pleasant, if we expect it to be easy, we're going to be disillusioned. You know, in Jesus' time, taking up your cross meant one thing. You were going to certain death, and the only hope that you had 
was in resurrection power. And in the very same way to us, to take up the cross means to crucify our flesh, to die to who we were, right? Denying those fleshly inclinations and instead to live by the power of the Spirit of God. Because it's only when we do that that we truly begin to live the way that Jesus intended us to live. Look at verse 25. He says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And this is the great irony, isn't it? This is that perplexing paradigm of the Christian experience. It runs contrary to all of our logic and reason. The more you live for yourself, the more miserable you'll ultimately be. But the more you say, Lord, you know what? I'm going to live for you completely and wholeheartedly and totally. The more you do that, the more abundant your life will be. Not only now, but of course, eternally. And we have to follow Jesus this way because it's the only way that we'll ever actually have life. It admittedly sounds strange to say, hey, you'll never live until you first walk to your death with Jesus, but that's exactly the idea. You can't gain resurrection life without dying first. We've all heard this example, but you don't lose a seed when you plant it, though it sort of seems like it's dead and it's buried, but instead when you plant a seed, you are setting that seed free to become what it was always intended to be. And what's amazing, and I know that you know that it's true, is that the people who live this way, walking with Jesus, putting others first, denying self, those are the people who are really and genuinely happy. Because giving our lives to Jesus all the way and living as other-centered people and living for Jesus, it never takes away from our lives. It just adds to them, doesn't it? And I'll bet that if you think back to those times in your life when you were the happiest, what you're going to find is that they were most likely the times when you were really living for Jesus. In your Christian walk, those times when he was really the priority of your life and when he was really the passion of your heart. And so, hey, take a chance, right? Live risky. And what you're going to find is not only are you going to be happier now, but Jesus says you'll also be rewarded eternally. Verse 26, he says, What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. If you take up your cross and you follow Jesus, you're going to be rewarded in the ages to come as well as presently. It's this undeniably always good exchange rate, right? In the Christian economy, our suffering always leads to glory. And this is why Jesus ends this short little mini-sermon with this reference to his kingdom. And then he adds in our last verse, he gives us this kind of puzzling promise. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And we think and we say, wait a minute. Now the disciples all died, but Jesus' kingdom hasn't come yet. So did Jesus make a mistake? 
we are going to have to come back next week because <laughs> the answer awaits us in chapter 17. But I love this, that Jesus ends with this, because I think that it leaves us with this important truth with which we will finally close today. <laughs> Walking with Jesus doesn't just mean a life of death and of carrying crosses. But walking with Jesus also means a life of power and a life of the glory of the kingdom of God. And Jesus promised that some of his disciples would see glimpses of that power and glory. And I, I believe, I truly believe in a very real sense that those glimpses of glory are available to each and every one of us each and every day as we walk with him. And as we watch him touch our lives and as we watch him touch others' lives and as we allow him to use us to be part of that process. But the catch is the extent to which we'll see the promise of verse 28 is only the extent to which we'll put up with the pain of verse 24. There's always, the cross is always the pathway to glory. Amen? enough. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. And we just pray, Lord, such important truths, Lord. We pray that you would help. Just give us understanding, Lord, beyond ourselves. Lord, help these powerful spiritual realities to take root in our hearts, Lord. Help us with our unbelief, Lord. Help us with our understanding. Help us, Lord, as we go forth from here today to live and to walk and to love and to, Lord, just to take chances and to live risky according to your economy, Lord, and not according to our fears, according to what the culture tells us. Lord, we want to be a people that are devoted and dedicated to you, and we need your help to do it, Lord, and we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand up and let's worship the Lord together.